Father in heaven, we are thankful for another opportunity to corporately worship you, for you alone deserve all of our praise and adoration. I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us, and Lord, speak through your humble and weak servant. First speak to my heart, and then to my mind. And I pray, Lord, that the words that are spoken would be, as it were, life, as they are given by your Spirit. And for this, Lord, we will thank you for the, this true bread that comes from heaven. For we ask it in the name of our Lord. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we'll read the first a few verses. <clears throat> First, the second Samuel, rather, chapter 9. Second Samuel, chapter 9. <clears throat> and we'll read the first uh, nine verses at least. If you have the Pew Bible, that's page 260. And it reads as follows. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. <clears throat> what I received for Christmas, what I received for Christmas, sounds like kind of a strange subject for a text of 2 Samuel. But anyway, this is the story of King David and the house of Saul. 
the first king has, uh, Israel's first king has as its roots uh, in the bond of friendship many years earlier. It's a friendship between David, then King Saul's armor bearer, and the king's son, Jonathan. It's an unusual configuration of this friendship. Unusual because Jonathan's father grew to despise David and saw him as a threat to his reign. Could it be that this young armor bearer's winsome personality, his athleticism, or his skill as a musician and his popularity drove the older and certainly insecure king to respond to David like this? What would cause a person to despise another who even serves their very beck and call? His father's ill will toward David did not decrease the special bond between David and Jonathan. As it were, they took blood covenant between themselves. So special was this brotherly bond that they had between themselves. This covenant was a promise by David of hesed or steadfast love or favor. Favor or steadfast love not only toward Jonathan, but it would extend to Jonathan's house forever. According to 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 15. As a matter of fact, it's said in 1 Samuel 18, 1, that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. And in chapters 19 and 20, it confirms to us that Jonathan dealt with David loyally. And in return, David pledged with an oath of blood to never cut off his kindness or favor to Jonathan or to Jonathan's house. 1 Samuel 20, 14 through 17, excuse me. The Bible says this about friends in Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all time and a brother is born for adversity. And in St. John chapter 15, verse 13, in the New Testament, Jesus himself says, greater love has no one than this. That someone lays down his life for his friends, speaking of Christ. Saul and his three sons, including Jonathan, David's close friend, they were all killed by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 31. It, of course, was the end of King Saul's reign, and it paved the way for the ascension to the throne by David, by then a popular and effective military leader under King Saul. So much so that it could be said, and was said in 1 Samuel 18, 14, that David had success in all his undertakings, and listen to these last six words, for the Lord was with him. With Saul now dead, forever gone is the fear and constant caution with which David had had to live with due to Saul's insane jealousy and paranoid personality. The open hostility with which Saul dealt with David 
including numerous attempts on David's life, are now a thing of the past. David, of course, knew of this constant danger when he reminded Jonathan in 1 Samuel 23, there is but a step between me and death. What a way for a person to live their life. Now, in our text, particularly, David has now become or been the king over Judah for the first seven years and now over all of Israel, beginning his eighth year. And David has won the respect of the majority of the people, including the military, and is feared as a warrior by the enemies of Israel. Additionally, King David has restored the sacred artifacts of the temple back to Jerusalem and has even expressed a strong desire to build a temple to the glory of God. David, however, despite his exalted position, he did not forget the oath, an oath of steadfast love that he promised to Jonathan, his now deceased friend. What a testimony to David that he chose to honor a pledge he made many years ago. And apparently nothing was in writing. Would I honor that pledge? There's nothing in writing. There was only one witness, and that was with the person with whom the pledge was made, and he's now deceased. Would you honor that pledge? It is out of that pledge, that oath born out of a beautiful fellowship and nurtured by the unity both David and Jonathan shared that David moved to to sovereignly orchestrate the fulfillment of that promise. There is some lingering bitterness between the two houses of Saul and David. Apparently an old wound that is slow to heal. There is enmity between these houses, the old regime and the new. Where once there was fellowship, now there's strife. But if there is a relative of Saul still living, perhaps David's overture of grace and mercy could mend that severed cord of love. And because of that oath with Jonathan, David begins a search for one of his relatives. So David summons Ziba, the former servant of Saul, to his quarters, and he asks Ziba, Is there still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? That's an interesting question to ask when you know a little bit about David's history as a ruthless person. Yes, he had a winsome personality and he was a poet and he was a great musician, but he also was a very effective and ruthless military leader. But for him to look for someone from the old regime, not to kill him as the custom was, to exterminate all those who preceded him so there'd be no competition. Exactly the opposite. David sought someone 
from the house of Saul that he might show him, and he didn't just say my kindness, but he said the kindness of God. What a question for the most powerful man in all of Israel to ask. He could have sought and retained the fellowship he had with other heads of state or reached out to some childhood friends after all. David was king with absolute power. He could have sought company among those he knew when he was a sheep herder or any number of persons he had relationship or common interests with. Those familiar with royalty, those who were current in protocol and those accustomed to pomp and circumstance. But no, David specifically asked if there was someone left of Saul's household. This is a specific search. He wasn't looking for anybody. He was looking for somebody. And need I remind my audience this morning that God did not bump into you accidentally as he was reaching over you to save someone else. The shepherd went on a purposive search for you and for me. If there were lingering hard feelings or bad memories from David's dealing with the late Saul, one would think that even the mention of Saul's name would bring those feelings rushing back to the surface. Flashbacks of running for his life, recoiling into dank, dark caves to hide from Saul's terror. Nightmares and no doubt countless sleepless nights all could possibly still haunt David. After all, it was with Jonathan that he enjoyed his greatest fellowship, his greatest joy, his greatest unity, yes, even his greatest friendship and deepest brotherly love. It was with Jonathan, not Saul, that David pledged covenantal fellowship and faithfulness not Saul. It could then be accurately said that Saul's house was an undeserving house. A person trying to take your life probably wouldn't be considered your best friend. Saul's house was an undeserving house. But deserving or earning the king's favor wasn't the prescription that was written by David with Jonathan. It was a prescription of love. David sent his servant looking just the same. He could have looked beyond Saul's house for just that person. He could have looked <clears throat> beyond his house for another house or chose another house. But, but companionship or even fellowship wasn't the pure motive between Jonathan and David. It was David's steadfast love. He even could have chosen to enjoy the regal magnificence of his exalted state alone and not share his vast possessions with anyone else. But how could that display steadfast love? David had everything. Gold was his. Silver was in his possession. The palace was his. The cattle of a thousand hills was his. 
The king indeed had it all. Mephibosheth would not be bringing David anything, but it was all one-sided. What can I do to show the kindness of God to this one, though he may be undeserving? David had need of nothing. Have you ever thought, and I'm sure you have, as I, what do we have to offer God? Does God really need my talent? Does God really need my skill? David had need of nothing. David at this point was as self-sufficient as one could possibly be. No one knew about this agreement after all. The covenant was between David and Jonathan. And Jonathan alone. And Jonathan is now dead. This agreement was made in the secrecy of their own fellowship. But David was on a mission. A mission born out of his covenantal faithfulness. He pledged to be committed to love a house that disregarded, disrespected, and at one point even despised him. But the king was pledged to keep his word. When you really stop and think about how much we have to do with our salvation it is, it, is, it is, of course, quite humbling. Isn't it an agreement between God in heaven and God on earth that God the Father and God the Son? Isn't it Jesus in his high, high priestly prayer who said, Father, all that you have given me, I've lost none of them. Robert Bergen says, covenantal faithfulness is the highest of virtues in the Hebrew world, in his New American Commentary. Here is the heart of grace in King David and his integrity on display that whatever he decrees will come to pass. Yes, David, King David, set his love on Bephibosheth long before this. And my friends, we're sitting in this sacred place today. Not because we're we've chosen to love God, but because God has chosen to love us and set his sights on you and me before we were ever even formed in our mother's womb. The servant Ziba comes back and he says, there is still a son. He's lame in both feet. And how interesting, that's the very first characterization that the servant, servant Ziba gives to, gives to David. There is a son, and by the way, he's lame in both feet. That's been said, and depending on the commentary that you read, that David had a uh, a real dislike of those who were, uh, those who were uh, challenged physically. Those who weren't self-sufficient, those who weren't as nimble as he or athletic as he. And again, depending on which commentary you read, particularly concerning chapter 5, some have said that David even abolished those who were lame or blind from the temple. 
So here Ziba says, there is one who's left of the house of Saul, and he is lame. And he's lame in both feet, by the way. He can't possibly come to you. Living in the house of Machir and Lodabar. Mephibosheth, by the way, was handicapped. It was not directly his own doing, but he was dropped as a young child. And apparently both of his feet or ankles were severely broken and he never recovered. And he never walked. Mephibosheth was recoiled, hiding in the house of Machir. Perhaps fearing retribution from David, who was an arch enemy of his father, grandfather Saul. Mephibosheth was lost of sorts, living but lost, lost for useful purposes, wasting his life away. His identity is lost since the death of his family, gone to the days of having open access to the king having open access to the king's property, or having the king's favor. His value or self-worth, even according to his own words, I am but a dead dog. I am worthless. This is not a story of dwelling on what's lost, but it's a story of being lost and found. Unsuspecting was Mephibosheth that someone was looking for him. Oh, my friends, did you know that God was looking for you? Did you know that he had orchestrated the activities of your life to bring you to him? I just thought I was a preacher's kid sitting in the pew like anyone else. My relationship with God wasn't all that important. After all, my father was a preacher. We were good people. Unsuspecting was Mephibosheth that someone was looking for him. And if you don't claim to know Christ this morning, is it possible that you're sitting here because God is trying to get your attention and draw you to himself? And let me go on a step further to say that all whom God sets his eyes on and his heart upon will come to him. Mephibosheth was not looking for David. David the king was pursuing Mephibosheth. And he was not pursuing him to kill him, but he was looking as it were, to save him, to show him the kindness of God. Shaphan again says this, it's customary to destroy the household of one's predecessor. If David had done the normal thing, he would have made sure that there was no one left of Saul's household. And perhaps Mephibosheth's condition, his physical condition, which meant that he had no way of getting to David, to beg for his mercy, to ask for forgiveness, to seek reconciliation, 
He had no way of getting to him. Gone were the chariots that once rode the streets of Saul's household. He was a living as a prisoner in his own house. Fear and a crippling fall kept him there. He had limited mobility and even less access to the throne. Completely surprised, speechless, I'm sure, that the king of Israel, no less, would search for him. David the shepherd looks for the lost sheep. How humble that royal resources would be employed to find him. David, with all of his royal authority and sovereign prerogative, sent out his messengers looking for Mephibosheth. And if you are a child of God this morning, it's only because God unleashed, sent out all of his royal resources to bring you and I to him. They would not rest until they had found him. Living in a place where in the Hebrew it means nothing. He was right. His life had really become nothing. What Mephibosheth did not know was that there had been a covenant between his father, Jonathan, and the king. In secrecy, known to no one else, Mephibosheth's destiny had been sealed. His future had been secured. His inheritance paid for all because the king's will, his decree was that David would forever show kindness to the household of Saul for Jonathan's sake. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is, what your last name is, where you come from. It doesn't matter how many zeros are behind a number in your bank account. It's only because of Christ that any of us are here. The decree was that David would forever show kindness to the house of Saul for the Jonathan's sake. Yes, for the sake of the one who died. The servant went out, searching and combing the land for one that the king may show him kindness. David said, when that knock came at the door. And I don't know if Mephibosheth answered, a friend answered, I don't know who it was. But the first words that David said to him are the words that often Christ spoke in, as recorded in the Gospels when he had an encounter with an unsuspecting person. The first words he said was, don't be afraid. I'm not coming with vengeance, I'm coming with grace. David was coming and came to, to, to Mephibosheth in saving grace. Don't fear. And then there's a royal decree. <clears throat> Robert Bergen once again says, David's summons shows the dialectic tone of a superior to an inferior. There's no such thing as a superior human being and an inferior human being. But what he meant was superior in rank or position. 
And Mephibosheth asked King David this question in verse 8. What am I to have deserved this? The answer is nothing. What did I do to deserve the favor and the kindness of God? What did you do? What could we do to earn the king's favor? Nothing. But I gave a pledge, a covenantal pledge, that I would show steadfast love to your father and any of the descendants of his family. With one decree, with nothing but his sovereign will, his royal edict, his secret word, this imperial decree changed the life of Mephibosheth forever. No one but a king could do this. Only one with sovereign authority could do this for a man that could change his position from being no one to becoming a son of the king. No one but a king could do this. Only one with sovereign authority could make this happen. Only a good king would do this. Only a great king would do this. Only the king of kings would do this for man. And now it's time to move. I don't know if there was time to pack anything or not. I don't know if he was told to leave his old stuff where it was. The text doesn't tell us that. But I know that where he was going was a place of sufficiency and abundance. Mephibosheth is not being relocated to live as a pauper or a beggar. First, he's given substantial property rights. Do you see in this text that there's even restoration? All that belonged to Saul and to his entire house, I have given to Mephibosheth. All that's Christ, one day will be ours. Neither does he go to a royal abode as a servant, but he's given status as a son. Here is adoption. He's been adopted. He's been made part of the family. He's one of them, no longer estranged. No longer an enemy, no longer alienated, no longer stripped of his royal identity, no longer without access to the throne. Mephibosheth has moved. He has a forwarding address. And for all indication, he'll never be back. There's security here as well. Saul has been restored by his new father. Mephibosheth has been restored by his new father, King David. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table, verse 13. If anyone is hungry, 
Jesus declared himself to be the bread of life. You'll never hunger. If you're thirsty for truth, Jesus also said that out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Now that Mephibosheth has moved to a new place, he has a new identity. He's identified with the king. The highest position of magnificence in the kingdom. He didn't reclaim his old identity as an heir to a defunct throne. But he has a new identity. 2 Corinthians reminds us Christians that if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things passed away, and behold, all things become new. Mephibosheth moved to a place of provision where there is abundance, more than he will ever need. David knew something of that. He would write in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So after having said all of this, You may ask, so what? That's a good question to ask. May I direct your attention to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians? The attempt to direct, address that. Verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 3, and by nature children of wrath. Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy. Verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, and raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places. Verse 7, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. My friends, you are Mephibosheth, and I am Mephibosheth. This is Mephibosheth's story, and it's our story. And this is what I received for Christmas and what you received as well, a Savior who took us, though we were strangers, sought us, though we were strangers, and has made us sit together with him in heavenly places. Amen.